Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It features new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. What's great about London, isn't it, is that it, London is a constant negotiation between the past and the present. It very rarely does the future particularly well. But, you know, there's always, it's always something that, that grows from the past and has to work in the present. And public transport is that in London. And it's also part of the knowledge of being a Londoner. There are amazing people who turn out to be bus nerds, and of whom my favourite is Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf was a total bus nerd. Transport. The skeleton of London and the backbone to what arguably defines a city. London's transport is so core to what we do, how we live, work and play, it's easy to overlook it or take it for granted. It's not until a tube that normally runs every three minutes is delayed by a mere five minutes that you realise just how finely tuned and balanced this infrastructure is. At its best, it's the most egalitarian aspect to our city. At its worst, it marginalises many. So why are we talking about it today? Because we here at Open City see it as something truly integral to a city being open. For every citizen to move and navigate a city independently, efficiently and safely is key to a mission of accessibility, inclusivity and equitability. But is our current transport meeting these ambitions? And if not, what questions should we be asking now to ensure that it is? In this episode, we will be exploring how we move around the city, how this has changed in the short and long term, how it needs to change to allow for all the different types of transport we use, walking, cycling, buses, tube, and what it is like for those behind the transport provision, for those that keep it running and those that negotiate their design and delivery. I'm your podcast host, Lara Kinnear, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Arman Nuri. Our guests for this episode are John Little of Bespoke Transport Consulting and Joe Carr, adjunct professor at Syracuse University, London. He's also a bus driver at Tottenham Garage, driving the number 19 route that journeys between Finsbury Park and Battersea Bridge. So Joe, writer, professor, historian, and more importantly, perhaps, driver of the number 19 bus, 
really a big pleasure to have you with us today. One of my favourite characters from my childhood memories, and I refer to him as a very real in my life character, not a fantasy, was the bus driver who used to take me and my dad to nursery every morning. And he would always, always greet me with a lollipop, a chocolate, a sticker, something small and massively, massively significant to a four-year-old me. Now, obviously, that was uh, nearly 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, and, and, and the world is a different place. Even pre-COVID, I'm not sure bus drivers giving lollipops to four-year-olds would be acceptable to some. But the point I'm trying to make here is that he really put effort into building relations with the people that he saw every day on his journey. And as you can tell, that remains a very impactful memory for me. So, you when you're on your number 19 bus, when you spend time on there, have you got people who you see regularly? And can you tell us a bit more about the interactions which transcend the typical oyster bleep and, if you're lucky, the uh, head nod and smile? Well, first of all, there aren't many that transcend that, you know. Basically, people get on with their mobile phone clamped to their ear and their and their oyster card or their payment card. And does that bother you? Just so because I, I always try and get on and smile and, had, had my, uh, and nod my head. Um but I wanted to know if that was something the bus drivers... It, it makes a tremendous difference. You know, but the public don't believe this, but it makes a tremendous difference. If you say hello or thank you to a bus driver in the morning or even just engage eyesight or even, you know, the hint of a smile, it makes a big difference. Um, and I really hate it that, you know, we are a bus driver now is just a piece of the machinery. They're not actually a separate human being. They're kind of embedded in the machinery of the bus. So if you get on and, and touch the uh, Oyster card reader and speaking to your mobile phone. You don't even look at the driver. You know, it's not part of the ritual. So you just got on it as if you were going through an automatic barrier on the underground or something like that. And I hate that. Talk about atomizing our society. It's really not good. It's really interesting that if you get on one of of those little hopper buses running through uh, a suburban neighbourhood, I used to drive one that ran through the Broadwater Farm Estate, you know, that that name of terror for a certain generation. Um, and it drives down little streets where other where other buses would never have been in the past. People behave like it's a country bus. So they say hello, they say thank you, they chat to each other. They behave in a very non-London way. You take them out to Seven Sisters Road or, or Wood Green High Road, they get off that bus, they get on a double-decker, and they revert to being Londoners. They just behave in the same way. So there's something about the physical design of buses that forces people into proximity that makes them behave nicer. I do appreciate that some people are cautious of buses and find them a bit scary, especially late at night and so forth. But by and large, people get on buses. I mean, there are double the number of people on buses than they're on tubes. And most people don't even know that. They think it might be comparable or the other way around, that tubes carry more people. We carry, well, before before the pandemic, we were carrying some over 2 billion passengers a year. And the tubes carry just over 1 billion passengers a year. So both are incredibly important. That's an awful lot of passenger journeys. But the buses, you know, they're the Cinderella service of London. They they don't have any kind of glamour attached to them. But they are, you know, they are the vital, they are the absolute lifeblood of London, of keeping London moving, of London's transport. Joe, it would be great for you to tell us a little bit more about your routes that you drive between Finsbury Park and Battersea. Um, because you've been driving for quite a while, and I believe it's the, one of the oldest routes in London, is that right? Route number 19. The 19 route is one of London's great and most graceful bus routes. And a small number of bus routes, mine included, are running on part or all of the same route that they've done since long before the First World War. Um, some of the bus numbers that are familiar to people, the 73 or the 9 or the 11, date back to 1908. 
and there's evidence that the, the 19 was running from 1906. Now, that's not just boring stats. That's extraordinary. People's lives organise around it. Buses belong to Londoners in, a, in an extraordinary way. And what, what have been some of your most interesting or unexpected moments as you're driving the number 19? Well, of course, the most extraordinary thing this year has been the public not coming onto my bus. You know, this, the drama of, of uh, COVID-19 was extraordinary. Within a few weeks of lockdown happening, uh, tube travel had dropped by 90% and bus travel had dropped by 80%. They also kept, kept running because, of course, there's plenty of people have to use them. Nurses going to hospitals have to use them. You know, uh, people doing essential jobs have to use them. Parents taking children to schools have to use them. So they had to keep going. But it is really weird driving in a city where every day feels like Christmas Day, you know. And, of course, all our times are so precise. People don't understand that buses are timed with an extraordinary provision, precision, you know. I'm supposed to be at Hyde Park Corner not at 9 o'clock, not at one minute past nine, but at one minute before nine. It's that precise. And so when you remove most of the traffic off the streets, uh, it causes chaos. Equally, as we've come out of lockdown, you know, I know we've gone back into it, but in the period where we came out of it um, and people returned to London, they returned to cars, not to buses. So it had the opposite effect. We had empty buses and crowded streets. So it's been an altogether weird time, really. So whilst, whilst Joe, you've had to delay your start by 15 minutes or, you know, wait five minutes at one of the bus stops en route to regulate the service. Um, John, what have you seen? Have you been getting calls from local authorities saying, quick, we need to deliver some, um, uh, you know, short-term cycle lanes to, to accommodate all this new traffic? That's the, the very direct link um, between what I've been up to and what Joe's been up to, because, of course, all those people who couldn't get on tubes or buses... Um, TfL were rightly concerned that we were going to try and drive into work. So um, a hell of a lot of cars potentially getting in the way of Joe's bus. So one of the reasons, actually, was to to make all those streets in those areas safe to cycle in particularly, um, with the hope that those linked together across the different boroughs and linked with other bits of existing infrastructure would mean that people might choose to cycle in during this period as opposed to... Um, if they can't get the bus or the tube, rather than drive. These obviously aren't main road journeys we're talking. These are London-based short car trips, and they may well be, you know, a few miles. People may well be popping around to see their mum through the window or whatever, but I think, unfortunately, everyone's choosing to do that by car. In the suburbs, it's a particular issue, isn't it? Because one of the things that people always get wrong when they think about transport is they think the big journeys are in and out of the middle of cities, whereas in London, the majority of journeys are short journeys that, that take place within the suburbs, you know, across suburbs. I think what we've already got to the point here is that transport systems, especially in a city like London, need to accommodate for a massive, massive variety of people, right? And, you know, the nature of the journeys that people take through the city, both spatially, you know, i.e. where point A is and where point B is, the actual mode of transport, whether bus, train, car, cycling, walking, and actually the frequency and the duration of those journeys has a lot to do with people's class, ethnicity, gender, and wealth. So I always come back to cycling as a, as a good example of this. And there are some massive disparities between cyclists and non-cyclists on all those metrics. So, you know, simply put, cyclists tend to be wealthier, whiter, and more male. And then there are those who are classified 
as low income and within that often are people of colour who use the bus almost 10% more than fellow Londoners. So purely from a demographic standpoint, let alone engineering, financial, architectural, designing a transport system means thinking about a lot of different factors that will determine people's experience of it. So John, from your experience, what are the biggest challenges when you're trying to mediate between all these different users? Are there some who normally win, normally lose? And in your work, have you felt like you've been able to challenge some of those inequalities? You're right. At the moment, the majority of people who cycle in London are white middle-class males, um, you know, of, of a certain income. Now, whether that's because they tend to be the people who have jobs near the only two really decent segregated cycle tracks that take you all the way into London safely, i.e. the City of London, is a diff- you know, is is a is an interesting point. I mean, you all most of the other roads you've got to cycle on to get there may as well be crocodile infested rivers, as far as most people are concerned. If they're if they're you know, when it comes to cycling, because they're not going to, they're not they're not going to cycle there. So I think actually um what that shows you is there's there's a massive bit of work to do about making cycling open and accessible to all. Um and certainly from the work that I do with local authorities when we actually ask ask people, and particularly people who don't cycle, more importantly the people who do, what you find is that the people who want safe, segregated, separate space to cycle are the people who don't at the moment. So they are the less likely people to cycle. And they are people who are younger and older and certainly female. How, how do you see this moving forward? I mean, we have to we have to move forward. We have to continue and 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 make sure that the transport system accommodates all these new needs, right? Um, and how do you, how do you see that playing out over the next you know months and years? The one thing I the one thing I one thing I would say is that what what this crisis has proved is that our transport systems aren't very flexible, you know, and uh, and we've been everything's been reactive. And that again, I think one of the problems with the low traffic neighbourhoods is that they were designed in a hurry as a kind of reaction rather than being, you know, unlike the mini Hollands, which were programmed and, and played through over a period of time. But certainly public transport has proved, you know, nobody, nobody saw this coming, obviously, but, that, but there wasn't any contingency for anything going wrong and something massively has gone wrong. Not too many people, too few people, you know, it's bizarre. I, I would actually add another requirement, um, which is actually just about space as a, as a human being. Um, and, and people getting that from their street, you know, the street in which you live, whilst everybody wants it to move around in, the people who live in my street, some of, you know, the people who are more vulnerable, particularly to COVID, actually just wanted to be able to go out of their house that they live in and have some space to move around in. And actually, the majority of the space in our street is given over to private vehicles and people paying £25 or whatever um, for the privilege to take up all that space and, and leave their private property on the public highway. I mean, cycle park is a really simple thing. It's, it's it's no different to car parking, is it? It's actually it's a vital part of the system. If you're going to ride a bike somewhere safe to lock it, and when you come back, it's going to be there and ideally be dry and all those things is, is absolutely crucial. Um, and, and badly placed cycle you know, cycle storage, cycle parking, call it rule, is then an obstacle for everyone else who's trying to use the footway. I mean, fundamentally, um, cycle parking should be in the carriageway like all other vehicles are parked and should be, um, in my humble opinion, um, you know, in, in space of, of a car parking space. Because, again, think about how much a little space we have in a city and if you have a shop and even, um, you know, I mean, business people need to understand you can have, 12 people in your shop who have come by bike or you can have one person who's come by car um i mean that's the reality of what you can get in one car parking space five or six sheffield stands that takes 10 or 12 bikes or one car and what do you you know 
Um, that that's the reality. We shouldn't be scrapping for space, which is what we always end up doing, um, putting people walking and cycling against each other and almost scrapping for, well, fighting for scraps, I should say, um, when it comes to curb to curb, when you think about every single, I mean, apart from the ones that everyone always bangs on about, which are one or two main roads in London that have given some significant space to cycling. In most instances, if you have got space, it's pretty limited when you actually look at it from building line to building line. And, it, you know, again, you get what you design for. Um, so you're going to have more people in cars if you give more space to cars. One of the new additions to our streets during lockdown were um, a new set of, of signs that went up on pavements uh, suggesting that you know, pavements were being widened for social distancing. And for a start, it wasn't really about social distancing, it was about physical distancing. Um, and the whole idea of signage in our cities, I think, is really critical if we think about those, the different users that we've been discussing here, the cyclists, the pedestrians, the bus drivers, the private car um, users. Um, how does the signage system work for all those different people and how does it react when things change? Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts on that? Um, I, I'm a great lover of street signage of all kinds. And in this country, historically, we actually have a, quite a good tradition about this. You know, we do it quite well. So, for instance, nearly all the major roads, all the kind of common road signs that tell you where children are crossing, where, you know, boulders are falling off hills, where men are at work, all those sorts of signs, as well as the big direction signs, the big green and, and on motorways blue direction signs telling us where places are, these were all designed by a pair of designers in the late 50s, early 1960s. Nobody had ever thought of designing this stuff before. It had just sort of appeared randomly. And suddenly we came in with this amazing, coherent system of signage that operates right across uh, the UK. And incidentally, if you'll excuse me for being a bit political, was partly introduced because Britain was thinking about joining the EU. And so it needed signs that weren't based on words, but were based on pictures. And everywhere in the world follows the same conventions. And I'm... Uh, one of the designers is still alive, Margaret Culvert. She's now in her 80s, um, you know, a pioneering woman in graphic design when most graphic designers were men. And I'm delighted that the Design Museum has now uh, put on a small exhibition of her work uh, because she's still working and will continue working. They make the point that if you click on the latest government information about, about COVID-19, the typeface on that government website is by the same woman who designed the children crossing the road sign that you've just come past. And that's fantastic. But equally, you know, like, like everything out, like all the other issues we've talked about with London streets, is that not all of this is under control. You know, there isn't one kind of coherent vision or voice or, or power to make all this work. And so all of this lovely clarity that we have historically is compromised by shoddy signage going up, by commercial signage taking over from public signage. And I do worry for London that, that, you know, that that kind of ethos, that public ethos is in decline. And signage is quite a good uh, kind of totem of that, I guess. Interesting. I, I mean, I think, uh, unfortunately, sadly, signage and, and road numbers and stuff are possibly losing their significance because, again, people are losing um, the need to know them because sat-navs tell you, turn left here, turn left. And my dad used to take great pleasure in telling you the A numbers that you'd need if you were going from Great Yarmouth to some far-flung part of the country that I'd barely heard of as a young person because that was one of the things he was into. And actually, it's a thing 
people almost laugh about now. You know, oh, my sat-nav sent me down a railway line. How hilarious. Um, it's You're in charge of two tonnes of metal. And, and you know, um, signage in a city is really important because people are making very quick decisions and there's a hell of a lot going on and there's cyclists wiggling in front of Joe's bus. So we're entering into unprecedented times for London's public transport system. COVID has forced TfL to be bailed out by central government and that has brought with it a whole raft of tensions and pressures for the system to navigate through. We are now the only global city with unsubsidised public transport, which is a truly remarkable state of affairs. There, there is now this battleground between TfL and local government and we're not sure how it's going to play out. Absolutely. And I guess we find ourselves in a position where big P politics is decisively and negatively impacting how we as Londoners are able to navigate our city. And as a result of that, it does feel like it's a conversation a bit too distant from the ground, too separated from the realities of Londoners every day. It's a discussion taking place in the boardrooms of City Hall, Whitehall, away from the ground, exclusionary for those who are well and truly relying on public transport to exist in the city. There doesn't really appear to be a space for a bus driver, a cyclist, a pedestrian to truly enter that arena and shape the future on this. So so I guess my question, and Joe, maybe to start with you on this one, where are we going? Am I being a bit too pessimistic? Is there an opportunity for the cyclist, the pedestrian, the bus driver to really meaningfully influence how TfL is going to provide transport in London over the next few years? Um, I don't think that space exists right now. I mean, it's one of my great bugbears, you know, my, if John's on his cyclist coming past me, that the only interaction between us only comes as a, as a point of conflict. And, you know, wouldn't I be a better bus driver and wouldn't he be a better cyclist if we were able to sit down and talk about this? Um, he probably has never sat in a bus cab and seen how restricted the view is from my mirrors. I've luckily never been on a, on a, on a, on a bicycle when 12 and a half tonnes of bright red metal bears down on me, you know. Um, and we should be able to share those experiences and thoughts. But the question about TfL is a very difficult one. Um, I think it's I think it's very tragic that just at the point where we where transport is getting more and more joined up in London, you know, TfL has more and more responsibilities. It's taken over huge swathes of the suburban railway network. You know, it's taken over the highways, things that weren't in the province of a, tra- of a traffic authority before, of a transport authority before. Just at that moment it's suddenly become a political football again. And, you know, regardless of what of what political persuasion you are, surely you just want something as simple as transport, as moving around the city, of safety, of being some things that are not controlled on the basis of, uh, of politics and of the kind of battles over budgets and so forth. I mean, the example that I find terrifying is the fact that as part of the temporary settlement for TfL, uh, there's been restrictions on free travel for the elderly and for children, or there's attempts to make restrictions on children. And, you know, what two groups would you rather see on buses, to be honest? You know, where are, where are the elderly and the, and, the, and children going to be most safe out in the public realm? I guess, I, I guess, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Joe, but this kind of speaks to previous topics that we've covered in other podcasts, and it really comes down to the people making decisions, not necessarily being those who have to experience the consequence of, of those decisions. So isn't that what we're talking about here? You know, people who are in City Hall, people who are in Whitehall, who are who are involved in that agreement, not really having to deal with the consequences of that. 
Well, not City Hall, because that, that, that particular settlement was imposed on them, you know. And I think, to their credit, TfL have, have, have resisted restrictions on people using public transport. But, yeah, of course, these decisions are, are, are taken far away and by people who probably don't even use public transport uh, at the best of times, um, but also because they're taken through this political lens. You know, in the old days, there was a transport authority in London that was sort of semi-independent of political control. Now, that's a difficult thing to achieve, but wouldn't that be such a more desirable thing, you know? Wouldn't it be great if transport policy didn't change just because there's been an election? It changed because, you know, there was a need to make it change for the benefit of us all. You know, as as Joe alluded to, you know, the TfL is... I mean, really, a mayor, you know, mayor has what policing and, and transport and housing probably is the kind of big hitters that they can influence the city with and, and sort of be known for being a successful or failure with. And, and, and transport is very much being politicised at the moment. So, so where, do we, where do we go um, following this deal that's been done between central government and TfL? Because if, you know, lockdown, we're in lockdown two at the minute. Uh, hopefully there's light at the end of this tunnel and, you know, we're going to see a bright new 2021 open up very soon with a new vaccine. Um, and hopefully numbers for public transport will start to increase. But, um, you know, it will that give us the the answer um, and start to fill up the coffers of TfL again? Or, or are we needing something a bit more fundamental to happen? Yes, we need something much more fundamental. I mean, the sad fact is that, that public transport in London had slightly peaked before, before the disaster of this year. So I don't think that simply hoping that returning to normal, everything's kind of going to, uh, everyone will get on my bus again. It's not going to happen, you know. So I think the answer needs to be bigger. And lots of people are working very hard from the mayor's office down in certain, you know, London boroughs are doing great things um, and obviously, add, you know, annoying other a lot of other people at the same time and, and making real change. But if we don't, um, I think, yeah, London London can't fun- function as a, as a record-breaking population city with everybody driving cars. We just can't. There isn't room. So something's, something's got to give. And the other issue we haven't talked about, but again, I presume it will have, it will have been uh, touched on in previous subjects and certainly links to them, which is the health aspect of this. You know, air quality yeah. in London is appalling. And yeah. for, for a brief moment, we, you know, wherever you were in the world, for a brief moment, you suddenly found what it was like to have nice, clean air. And wasn't it lovely? Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, the the the, the dash back to work and and the the dash back to car transportation is just going to plummet environmental conditions down. There's a very can I say there's a very salutary story from the past which which is worth recounting very briefly, um, which is what happened after the Second World War, because of course that was the last great disaster to face public transport, you know, and it, and so, you know the consequences were very much the same. It became very difficult to use public transport and people had to make other arrangements. So after the war, you know, London streets were battered and, and smashed up and, and the place was pretty decrepit. So they made an amazing decision. They said, we're going to invest in fantastic buses. We're going to design them beautifully, that they're the new architecture of the future. And if you're going to put three or 4,000 buses on the streets of London, they should be pieces of architecture. We got the Routemaster, you know, the most loved bus on earth. Uh, that fantastic thing, which we can all look back on fondly. But equally... It was easier to do that than it was to invest in the infrastructure for trams and trolley buses, for electric transport systems. So the Routemaster's real job was to replace electrical transport and replace it with diesel transport. So, you know, there's this great myth told that, that the Clean Air Act cleaned the air in London. Well, yeah, they, you know, they stopped people putting coal in coal grates 
and we could see down streets a bit further and we stopped getting smog. And instead, we put 3,000 diesel buses on the streets of London and absolutely trashed air quality. Is there anywhere that we can learn from who have managed lockdown successfully and are building a longer term outlook, especially around those things that we've covered, health, navigation, accessibility, inclusivity? Where, where, where can our listeners go and reference as places that have really, really come out of lockdown and, and done a good job? Uh, well, I, <laughs> I will probably not thank myself for saying this, but I would say um, Lambeth is, is is to be commended. I mean, I, I did kind of plan uh, what's called a livable neighbourhood, which is kind of TfL's new version of the Mini Hollands. Um, they're the places to keep an eye on, you know. I mean, uh, Wealth and Forest, where I've worked previously, of course, have a kind of template almost now that they roll out, which which works very well, and it's tried and tested and proven. And, and um, you know, whether you agree with all the statistics about behaviour change and all the rest is by the by. The fact is you can go there and you can hear the birds sing and you can stand in the middle of the road and get knocked up, run over. And I think they're two pretty good success factors, in, you know, for a residential street. Um, don't talk to me about whether traffic's increasing, you know, on, on, on main roads or not, because there's so many factors that go into that. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, it really has been juggling chainsaws. So I think places that places been, that have been bold and tried stuff and it hasn't worked as well deserve um, as, as much plaudits as, as anybody else. And as Joe rightly says, um, you know, a lot of these schemes have have actually fallen flat because local authorities aren't experts in, you know, transport engineers particularly. I'm, I'm I'm not an expert transport engineer, really. If you know, a bit of a charlatan, if truth be told. But but I think what I help people with is how we talk to people and how we how we interpret. And probably because I'm a bit of an idiot myself when it comes to engineering, don't overcomplicate it for me because I won't get it either. Important political change. Uh, we need to stop fair revenue as being the thing that generates money in this in the capital for two reasons. You know, one because it doesn't get enough, and two and you put it up for the wrong reason, and two because the fares are too high, and that keeps people off public transport. I mean, if you halved revenue, if you halved the fares on the buses tomorrow, that would have a dramatic impact, wouldn't it, on people converting to public transport? I mean, probably too dramatic. We probably wouldn't have enough buses then. Make it all free, Joe. That's what we want yeah, to do. Yeah, free is absolutely right. And then the other one I think is so important is we we have to be coercive about restricting private vehicles in central London. I mean, nobody thought they could do congestion charge, did they? When when Ken introduced the congestion charge, uh, everyone thought, well, that's a step too far. No one's going to comply, but that's terrible. That's a restriction of civil liberties. Now it's just a fact of ordinary life. So this requires very strong leadership. It really requires strong leadership, but it can be done. And the thing that you already do at Open House, it's education, 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 isn't it? These messages aren't strong enough and they're not clear enough. And to generate public consensus and to generate public support for very hard decisions that need to be made, we need education. Yeah, I think this the fact that people have tried change and the fact that it's shown actually that when conditions are different, people do want to do things differently. But, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic that, that people have seen that Newcastle can be different or that Manchester can be deal wherever and, and that, that people will now want a bit of that. London is uniquely placed. I mean, we, we have to look at... London London has an amazing amount of success to build on. You know, when I, when I first entered uh, transport more than 40 years ago, it was in decline and people thought that was inevitable. It was kind of on the way out. You know, the car was going to run everything and buses were just a sort of residue of the past. Then suddenly, in the last 20 years, it all turned around, you know, and now we have higher bus usage in London 
than we had in the uh, 60, 70 years ago. So we can do it. And London actually has not only the opportunity, but perhaps the duty and the responsibility to show the rest of the world how a major city, one of the great world cities, can thrive on the basis of a public transport system that is sustainable and equitable and accessible for all. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Silasi Satifa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher and our producer Ruby Maynard-Smith and the Open City staff Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave and Sean Milliner. 